You're in the water loop. Welcome to Waterloop, the podcast helping water leaders to discover solutions and drive change. I'm the host, Travis Loop. This episode is part of a series, The PFAS Puzzle, Lessons from a Contaminated Cape Fear. The forever chemicals were dumped in the North Carolina River for nearly 40 years before being discovered. The series explores how a community responds when it is the epicenter of PFAS pollution. This episode is about advocacy. PFAS poses difficult challenges on multiple fronts for environmental advocacy groups. High levels of PFAS in the Cape Fear River meant local advocates had to learn about the complex chemicals and at the same time provide information to concerned community members and take steps to address the pollution. The work and the lessons learned are discussed in this podcast with Dana Sargent, Executive Director of Cape Fear River Watch, and Kemp Burdett, the Cape Fear Riverkeeper. Dana and Kemp also talk about pursuing legal action against state regulators and the industrial polluter, working with the water utility and public health researchers, and advice for advocates dealing with PFAS in other communities. Before starting the interview, I want to quickly mention that Waterloop is a nonprofit media outlet. This series is made possible by the support of PFAScoms.com, Ultra, and Black and & Veatch. I will take a few minutes to talk about their expertise on PFAS and then start the conversation. Waterloop. This episode is sponsored by PFAScoms.com. PFAS is shaking public confidence in our nation's drinking water. And now that EPA is requiring utilities to test for PFAS, newsmaking findings are guaranteed. Your utility must become and stay the trusted go-to source for information about PFAS in your community. PFAScoms.com is here to help. Their communication experts protect you from threats to your reputation when discoveries are made. PFAScoms.com provides proactive public information plans as well as 24-7 emergency support. Visit PFAScoms.com today to set up your free initial consultation. That's PFAScoms.com. This episode is sponsored by Ultra. When it comes to PFAS, there are hundreds to thousands of contaminated sites across the U.S. and Canada. Military bases, airports, landfills, and industrial facilities are all known locations where the risk of having PFAS is very high. Ultra experts have been performing risk assessments and implementing cleanup solutions for PFAS for nearly 40 years, building a reputation as innovators along the way. The Ultra team is helping pave the way for better outcomes with proven innovations like its patented PFAS technology and first-of-its-kind continuous process. This drive for innovation, combined with its comprehensive suite of solutions and local regulatory knowledge, means customers have the right team to combat their PFAS challenges. Visit Logistech.com forward slash PFAS hyphen solutions. This episode is sponsored by Black & Veatch. Black & Veatch is proud to provide the planning, design, and construction services for Cape Fear Public Utility Authority's new granular activated carbon facility that successfully removes PFAS from the Wilmington community's drinking water. Black & Veatch helps organizations across the country and around the world to address their PFAS challenges 
providing end-to-end -end consulting, engineering, and construction services to meet each community's unique needs. From applied research to executed projects, Black & Veatch is at the forefront of innovative and effective PFAS treatment solutions, trusted by key trade and research organizations, such as the American Water Works Association, the Water Environment Federation, and the Society of American Military Engineers to mitigate the impacts of PFAS in our environment, critical infrastructure, and communities. To learn more, visit bv.com forward slash PFAS. You're in the water loop. When, as Riverkeeper, did you learn that there was PFAS coming out of that facility into the river? I learned about uh, PFAS leaving that facility and entering the Cape Fear River, entering our drinking water supply at the same time everybody else did here. Um, and it was, um, I was actually out of town at a conference in, um, in Utah and I got a phone call and somebody said, Hey, have you heard about this Gen X issue? And, and I had no idea what Gen X was. Um, I had no idea what PFAS were. Um, and, and that was the exact same article that than everybody else in this town read. Yeah, it rocked it rocked the area, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. So as a as an advocate, you know, as a river keeper, what process did that kick off for you? What what did that lead to you doing? You know, right away I started trying to learn as much as I could about PFAS and Gen X and, and Camores and DuPont and the story uh, of of DuPont in Parkersburg, for instance. So uh, there was a an online um, news source called The Intercept and uh, author named um, Susan Lerner had written a series of articles about uh, Parkersburg and about PFAS in general um, and they were you know extensively researched and and you know lots of primary documents uh, in the article and so I just started reading that and I read it over and over and over again and I just learned more and more and more and uh, and so I, I, you know, I took kind of the history of the issue and then I put it together with what was happening here and I started looking at, at permits for the Comores facility and I started just realizing that, that what we had here was a, a very similar situation to Parkersburg. We had an industrial polluter that had been discharging a hazardous compound into our drinking water supply for decades um, without any... Um, any notification to the public, um, and, and they had, you know, basically tried to use every loophole imaginable to do that. It's amazing that you're one of these advocates, right? You're tuned into what's going on, but you know, like so many other stakeholders, you just learned about this the first time for the first time, right. and then you have to go like them into information gathering mode, right? Like yeah. learning about this, but the community that you represent, you know, everyone's got questions. Everyone's right away is like, what does this mean? Nobody has answers right away. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a very it, kind of terrifying experience because, you know, you, you read about Parkersburg um, and, you know, thinking back to how it's going, I'm reading about this Parkersburg case, I'm reading about these health impacts yeah. and I'm thinking, you know, I mean, I've got kids and my kids drink the water, uh, you know, that used to be, in our brochure it was like five things you can do to protect water quality one of them was drink tap water and not use plastic bottles right yeah 
And so you just kind of start to, you know, really kind of think more and more and more and more about kind of, well, God, I, we did baby formula with this water. We did, you know, like we drink this water every day. I've, I've told other people to drink, you know, it's just people, people fishing out of the river all the time, eating fish, the whole thing. Yeah. It's, see, and it's also, you've got your work hat on, right? Trying to fight for the river. And then you, you live here. So you've got all those questions too. You know, as a river keeper, you're kind of part of the bigger river keeper, water keeper family network, right? Um, had any of your other colleagues kind of dealt with a situation like this? Is there any, any, any template you could follow from them, or this was in some ways new ground? In 2017, June of 2017, when this happened, I, I didn't know any other river keepers who had dealt with a with PFAS from a from an industrial producer. Um, just really very little it was known about PFAS at all, um, especially uh, you know by the general public. You know, I think I think there were definitely some scientists who were um, who were aware of PFAS, and, and it was, you know, it was, of course, the whole Parkersburg, West Virginia thing had happened, and, but I think it was viewed as kind of like an isolated issue. Uh, and, and of course, it turns out that it's not isolated at all. It's everywhere. I bet every river keeper has now tested their river, yeah. their waters for it, right? I mean, we did a huge, um, like a, like kind of a sampling blitz uh, over the summer, and, you know, couple of hundred water keepers, we all sampled um, our waterways at the same time and, and most of them had PFAS pollution. Uh, we had some of the highest, um, but it, um, it's, it's everywhere. June of 2017, this story breaks about PFAS in the Cape Fear River. Um, could you talk a little bit about how the advocacy community here in Wilmington responded to that well obviously a big initial reaction of wow but then what 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 happened i think the first initial reaction was what it was like what is this you know nobody had heard of it most of the time in, in environmental advocacy like you're you're not surprised by a new contaminant that is completely outside your wheelhouse of understanding so that was the beginning of what the heck is this stuff and so i think for Cape for River Watch, we just dug into trying to research and figure out what it is. And uh, so that was the first step was like educating ourselves. Um, and at the same time, making sure that we were providing opportunities to take what we've learned and to share it with the public because the public was scared. Um, so right off the bat, we partnered with multiple people in the community um, and held community events. The first event was really well attended hundreds of people showed up tons of questions we had uh, one of our board members who's a scientist at uncw we had a pediatrician we had um, a chemist and we had you know river keepers and advocates there and and doing q a um, and it was packed it was a packed house um, we then held very specific events for science where we just invited all the scientists <laughs> we held uh, an event related to the to the utility, um, talking about what was happening there. And so for that first maybe six months, it was just, okay, what's the next thing we need to, to tell people? What do we need to do? Because everybody was confused and scared and they were 
doing what we do as humans these days is look things up online. Mm -hmm. And then so there was just a lot of questions. And so we were just trying to answer them. So you had these two tracks going really, like you had your own information, gathering, learning, figuring out about this family of chemicals, and then also trying to be a helper for the community, right? Like be their voice, be their pass through to, to people, help them get information, like those two things going at the same time. Absolutely. And then at some point you kind of shift more into advocacy, maybe as you get your minds around what this is, mm -hmm. as you uh, you know get kind of the community's voice built in, you start being, all right, now we need to talk to the regulators or talk to others about what to do about this. Is that part of what happened? A lot of that beginning step became what can we do in the land of legal advocacy because we were already frustrated with the fact that the regulator, our DEQ, the Department of Environmental Quality, which is the only regulatory agency in the state to manage issues like this, whose mission is to protect human health and the environment, wasn't doing enough, wasn't doing anything fast enough. <laughs> so we were, what do you do? Um, we sued them. So. That was one of our first big things. We sued the DEQ. We sued Chemors um, with our lawyers at the Southern Environmental Law Center um, and their great, great guidance. Were those two separate lawsuits? Is those two separate legal actions? Or yeah. you, so you okay? So you go after the polluter and then you sue the regulatory agency for not for inactions. Yeah. For yeah, and so the lawsuit for Chemors was uh, based on violations of the Clean Water Act and the Toxic Substances Control Act. We know they violated them. DEQ, it was, you're not upholding your mission um, and you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Uh, so what happened was that they, then the DEQ sued Chemors <laughs> as well. Um, and then they got, you know, we intervened in that. Um, and then we were able to make an agreement with Chemors and DEQ uh, to drop our suits um, in order to get the consent order signed and to get us in it. Uh, so the consent order, became a huge piece of our advocacy work, um, and it still is. Uh, there's a lot of different stakeholders involved in this situation, right? You've got the utilities, you've got the regulators, you've got the, the industry, industrial facility, you've got public health people. How have you, you know, worked with them? What, what's that been like, you know, those relationships? You know, we're partners on a grant with NC State um, with a Superfund uh, grant on the Gen X exposure study, so this is the only study of Gen X, the, the, the replacement chemical for what was uh, tef the Teflon chemical from Parkersburg, Virginia. Uh, and it's the only study of its kind. It's too small. It's not going to provide health outcomes that we could produce litigation from, um, but it provides education to the public about what is in their blood, uh, what is in their, 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 their bodies from this company. And um, so we are a part of that with, along with the Haw River Keeper and Sustainable Sandhills in the Fayetteville region as communicators, as taking that, trying to help them take that science and communicate it with the public, giving them opportunities for that. There's also a you know, separate research arm of that where we meet with the folks that are part of the science community, um, working with them on that. We work with epidemiologists and chemists and all these folks. I'm constantly on emails and texts and chats um, asking them questions. And you know, they're so great. We're, super, super grateful to the North Carolina scientists. I mean, I can't even tell you how powerful this group of people are. And they're not only just dedicated and motivated to like figure this stuff out, but they're just, they all have heart, you know? So I talk a lot with, with you know, like 
Dr. Jamie DeWitt, Dr. Detlef Canape. I mean, these folks hooked up uh, Dr. Canape last week with an organic farmer who, it's just devastating to me. He called and he said, you know what? I, <laughs> I stopped selling my eggs. He's an organic farmer in New Hanover County because his well water is contaminated with toxic chemicals. He was like, I started this farm to provide food to my community that is not filled with chemicals. And now my food is filled with chemicals. And, you know, just putting that together with Chemors, the company that's creating the contamination, continues to create the contamination, continues to make billions of dollars, has just re requested to expand production at their facility. This guy is taking a hit financially because he doesn't feel good about selling his eggs. So many ripples from all of this, so right? Many. Across so many different angles. So many. I, I, I just wanted to touch on that other stakeholder, the regulator. You know, you mentioned suing them to start, mm -hmm. right, for inaction, uh, then, then going in on this consent agreement with them. Mm -hmm. um, what else about that relationship with regulators as an advocacy group? What's that relationship like? How do you approach that, manage it? I think the DEQ under the current leadership, Secretary Beiser, has, has shifted um, to a DEQ that really does. I think they've always cared. I think, unfortunately, they are in a hard place, right? Here's another huge problem with our government. The DEQ is funded by our legislature. Our legislature currently is a majority of folks who traditionally support corporations over public health and the environment. If the DEQ does something extremely powerful against this corporation and pisses off the legislators that fund them, what happens to the DEQ? Their budget gets decreased, right? So they have to walk this very thin line of trying to do what their mission is, to protect human health and the environment, and have the funding to do it. Yeah. Currently, they're extremely underfunded, extremely understaffed. They can't fill positions. And you know, I have said to them in public meetings and in writing, and I'm sorry, we're understaffed as well. You know, we can't, yeah. we're a nonprofit. We have to beg people for money to run this place and to pay our people what they deserve. And, and we get it, right? But we're trudging through. And so my request to them has always been, please keep trying. Please, please, please do more, do more. I've got now, over the last couple, I would say year to year and a half, really um, a lot more of a, an, of a, of a back and forth of an authentic relationship with DEQ relative to the well sampling in this region. So they've been extremely supportive of providing the information when I ask them. Um, I, I know that their heart is in the right place. They want to do what's right, but my request to them is and has always been, please do more. Uh, the consent order cannot be the stopgap. The consent order is great. I'm extremely proud of it. It was the first step. We said that from the beginning. This is not the end of this. This is our first step right now to get this stuff stopped. We need it to stop entering the river, number one, now. That's it. And then there's so much more to do, right? And the consent order has limitations. It was written in 2019. We know so much more. Part of the consent order included what they called non-targeted analysis. We required them to pay for this, which means basically taking a drop of water and figuring out what's in it. Our chemists now when you figure out how much PFAS is in it, you're testing four specific chemicals. Non-targeted just says, what's in it? Figure it out. It's, it's really complicated, it takes longer. They found 257 unknown PFAS. That's amazing. I was gonna say, testing for four when there are thousands of variants of PFAS. So the consent order is testing for 12 um, in the wells. And I've been saying to DEQ for a couple months now, 
I think this is arbitrary. I think we need to rethink this. I think we need to stop saying the consent order holds us to this. The DEQ is not bound by the consent order. The DEQ is, is, needs to, to react to the consent order. They're written into it, and they need to do their part of it, but they don't have to stop there. They can do more. So I feel a little bit like a therapist, you mm. know, like, I'm just like, I'm so sorry. You, you are know? their shoulder and, to cry on. Yeah, and yeah. then, um, but I did, so there was an opportunity for two questions, and I raised my hand, and I said, Secretary Beiser, all due respect, you're talking about all this money. I just listened to these two community members. I talked to them both for about an hour each on the way up here, talking about their struggles. And, and I understand a lot of that money's not slated for PFAS work, but that should give you a little, a little breathing room to dedicate some more stuff to PFAS work. And I just hope you can understand that, like hearing that, you're so proud of all of the things that you're, that, you're, that you're doing with all of this money is really hard when there hasn't been any effluent limitations on PFAS, which is an easy fix. It's a Clean Water Act requirement that our regulators use technology that is available to limit discharge from a site, right? So this is before the latest permit when DEQ did in fact do that. And they produced the strongest permit in the country on PFAS to this date. And so I don't know if, if, if it had much to do with me, but that was the beginning of this. Um, you know, they, there was a really weak permit. Um, we fought it. We had community members come out to the public hearing. We had at least 100 people speak and say, this permit's too weak. You need to make it better. And they heard us. This is a wonky thing. They heard our comments. They heard our suggestions, and they were able to speak to it. And I was so proud. I was sitting in there going, God, everybody gets it. I That's was so it. worried. That's what you're working for is yeah. that kind of that impact then. Yeah, they got it. They submitted written comments. And then the next, the permit that came out was the strongest permit in the nation. And so I'm very grateful to DEQ for taking that action. Sure. We've done research, like I was just mentioning, uh, with Waterkeeper Alliance and, and with, uh, with Waterkeepers Carolina, where we're taking samples both you know, at Camores, but also in other places around the state where, where we think we're likely to see PFAS contamination show up, and, and it is in other places uh, from other sources. Um, so, you know, and, and then with the utilities, we, um, you know, I, I think Cape Fear River Watch and Cape Fear Public Utility Authority in Brunswick County are, are pretty aligned on this, right? We, we think that this company came in and they polluted the drinking water supply for hundreds of thousands of people and they absolutely are responsible for that and should be held accountable for that um, and so we very much you know support the utilities efforts to to take Comores to court and have Comores pay for the, the millions of dollars of upgrades that they've had to put in um, and that all the ratepayers like you and I <laughs> who right. live here have had to, to pay for. Yeah. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. So we're doing the same. I mean, this is, you see this over and over and over again in, in like the kind of work that I do. People end up paying the price for industry that's unwilling to, to clean up their act. They, they dump pollution in our waterways and we pay for it one way or another. We either pay for it through, you know, our rates to clean this stuff up or our, our, our you know, bills when we go to the hospital for cancer or, you know, the loss of our natural resources or loss of our property values, whatever it is, we end up paying for industry that, that doesn't, you know, do the right thing. What, uh, what other lessons have you learned from the past five, six years here? You know, what, what, you've learned a lot of them, right? Yeah. But what are some of the key things that really jump out to you when it comes to being, you know, 
an advocate, being a river, being a river keeper? Well, I think the first big thing I learned again, and our, and our community learned maybe maybe for the first time, was that the idea that you can just trust that your water is safe uh, because you know like the government is providing it or a utility is providing it the idea that that there's no way that that as a as a country we would allow industrial polluters to dump really dangerous chemicals into a drinking water supply that is just not true um, that happens all the time it's happening right now uh, and it's going to continue to happen uh, because we are not preventing it from happening. Like we have, uh, you know, we allow this stuff to go on, um, and and so that's the big takeaway. Um, other take, I mean, a lot of we, we, I've learned a ton on this. You know, I, I the the power of an outraged community um, and, and the, the power of a community that, that sticks with something uh, is, cannot be underestimated. Um, you know, we, we are still fighting Comores. You know, Comores is still proposing to expand their facility, and people are outraged, uh, and and that you know as as much as as many times as I've seen um, communities kind of get steamrolled, this is an example of a community that's really fighting back. Yeah, not gonna not gonna get steamrolled on this. Yeah, listening uh, number one is huge, and. You know, a lot of us think we know a lot more than we do, and in this situation, none of us knew anything. Um, and I think it, we've all been learning together, and, and so for me, it's like, um, I need to listen to the community, number one. And the community are the people who are living this nightmare. And, and so I try to make myself available um, in any way, phone calls, emails, texts, all the things I've got. I don't know how many, at least dozens of people that are texting me, sending me. There was a mom who sent me a video of her husband giving their baby a bath. And I was just bawling because she's, you know, she sent me this video. He's, he's sitting there saying to their two-year-old, don't drink it, honey. Um, you know, I, he's like, there's bad people. This little baby says, why? He says, there's bad people. Mm. And, you know, and this is devastating. And, and this mom said, I just want to watch my baby and laugh with her playing in the water, but I feel guilty. Like, that's what's happening. And, and so I need to hear those stories so that I can then convey that. What about, uh, you know, you've mentioned other, other states, other places are certainly dealing with PFAS. Uh, it's all in the news when, when these things pop up. Um, but <laughs> here in Wilmington, you know, the Cape Fear have got this distinction of kind of going first in this fight in some ways. What advice would you have for other communities on the advocacy front? You know, what, what should they do if they've got concerns about PFAS? I think one of the first things to do is to find an environmental law firm that you, you know, Southern Environmental Law Center, SELC, has represented us on this, you know, on our two lawsuits, one against the state, one against Comores. It kind of eventually turned into one. 
Um, they're a pro bono law firm, and and you know I can't say enough good things about SCLC, and, and we wouldn't be where we are now without a tremendous amount of legal help. Um, so that's that's one thing, you know, start looking for the expertise that you need to fight something. And in our case, that expertise was legal expertise. Um, really dig into the permits, um, and not just the most current permit, but dig into past permits and see how you got to the place where you are. Because what we learned is that there had been years and years and years of just really inadequate permitting. Uh, and there had been years of, um, you know, really the state not doing what it should have been doing to protect uh, human health and the environment. Um, expect, like, pushback. Uh, and, and expect pushback in the places where you, where you really hate to see it, but, um, which is the state. Uh, when we first started pushing this, the state uh, was doing a terrible job. Uh, it, it was like we were having to convince them that PFAS in the water was, was a bad idea. And they did initially, uh, you know, they tried to deflect and they tried to say, you know, everything was fine. And they tried, you know, they, they tried kind of every, um, everything they could to, to, you know, make it seem like everything was fine and that they had been doing their job and that everything was under control and there was nothing to worry about. Uh, when in fact there was a, a lot to worry about and, and there was nothing under their control almost. And, and, you know, that eventually led to us suing them. Um, so expect to have to really fight to, to get, you know, what you deserve, which is clean, safe water. Um, another thing we learned was that it's easy to forget that there's a lot more to your community um, than the people who pick up the phone and say, where can I buy the right kind of filter to put on my house, right? We got, we started getting that question right off the bat and I totally understand it because I wanted to keep my family safe too. So the idea that like, you know, how much money do I need to spend to filter this stuff out? And, and I, I'm thankful we had, you know, a lot of conversations about this. Um, we had one of those community forums. Um, we brought Deborah Maxwell from North Carolina NAACP in to talk about environmental justice. And, and this was a situation where, you know, we didn't want to go down the road of saying, well, what everybody needs to do is go out and spend 200 or $2,000 on a filter and, and get their water clean and then leave all the people behind who can't go out and spend $200 or $2,000 on a filter because you very, very quickly you remove those voices from the fight, right? Because they're like, I've got clean water. You know, I'm, I'm happy now. I've got clean water. And all those other people get left behind. And so we, we really tried to keep the focus on, you know, we need to take steps that don't involve needing money or power. We need to take steps that protect every single drinking water user that's getting water out of that Cape Fear River. But it's, 
you know, it's easy to, um, to forget that when you're just trying to protect you and your family. It's, it's easy to forget that, um, it's easy for a community to forget that, that you have to protect the entire community. Yeah, and there's huge parts of that community that, that doesn't have all the means necessary to, to do X, Y, or Z, for sure. What I'm trying to do with this series and these conversations is try to share information that can help other communities that are facing PFAS pollution. Um, what, what advice would you have for those other communities out there that are in a similar situation? Well, I think first, we're really lucky that we have data, right? So many states across this country most likely have PFAS in their drinking water, but they don't know it yet. And so we look at like this epicenter, but that's because the NC Collaboratory, which was funded by the taxpayers, which I disagree with, but needed to be done, um, gave us this data, right? So if you look at the map from, from the NC Collaboratory of water in this state that is contaminated, you're covered, pretty much covered. But that's because we have the data, right? So number one, somebody needs to figure it out. And, and so these regulators, unfortunately, at the expense of taxpayers or private scientists, universities, need to do the research because unfortunately it's probably there and you're not gonna be able to do anything about it until you know it's there. Um, so that I think is key for many, 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 many areas in this country that have yet to, to, to find that data. Um, and then after that, <laughs> it's a hard one. I mean, you just have to, I guess, reach out to people like us and, uh, and that have been here. Um, you know, similar to, uh, you know, we reached out to those before us and unfortunately it's just this continuing cycle of the same story being recycled while these, these companies continue to make billions of dollars. So we're, we're just in this. This is very much a continuing fight, right? So, uh, it, as crazy as it sounds, even even after you know the last six years uh, of ever increasing numbers of contaminated wells, uh, ever increasing steps that are being taken to to um, you know treat drinking water supplies out of the river. Every day we learn more about how bad PFAS are for us. Um, and, and with all that in mind, Camores has had the gall to say that they'd like to expand, expand production at their facility. Um, and, you know, it, it's kind of mind boggling, but nonetheless it's happening. And so we are fighting that expansion. Uh, Camores doesn't know how their contamination from 100 miles upstream got into groundwater here. No, nobody knows the answer to that question. We know it's their pollution. It's, it's like a fingerprint. You know, we can, we can look at the pollutants and know exactly where they came from, but Comores or the state or researchers, nobody can tell us how it got here and, and why it's in wells and why it's in some wells and not in other wells. and and. So we can't even answer that like most basic of questions, and they're still trying to expand. Uh, every every day, they continue to press further and further out from their facility, and every day they find new contaminated wells. Uh, they haven't reached a point yet where they've 
stopped finding contaminated wells. And that still all has the fingerprint, like right. those are traced back. Exactly. They're, these are chemicals that are known to be produced at the facility and only at the facility. Of course, we find legacy compounds and things like that too, but just the, just the co compounds that have Camor's fingerprint on them, we're still finding. Thank you for listening to the podcast and thanks to PFASCOMS.com, Ultra, and Black and & Veatch for the support of this series. To find all episodes, sign up for email updates, and connect on social media, visit waterloop.org.